This is Scripture's premier picture of a radical transformation from lostness to conversion. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and among the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when Jesus saw, or when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great deal, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So it's startling to me as I think back to the miracle that we looked at of the calming of the sea. We said one of the, the distinguishing facts about that miracle was that was probably the most visibly stunning miracle that Jesus performed. So many of Jesus' miracles weren't necessarily visually stunning in the sense that for many of the miracles, you had to know the backstory behind the miracle to really be shocked by what Jesus did. You had to know that this man had been born blind. You had to know that this man had been a paralytic for 40 years and had been sitting by the pool waiting to, to get into the pool. You had to know that the, the, food, the baskets of food weren't full when the disciples started, but there was instead just a, a few loaves of bread and a couple of fishes. You had to know these things. You had to know the backstory in order to be shocked by what Jesus did. But this miracle in particular, along with perhaps his walking on the water, this miracle was the most visually stunning of Jesus' miracles. You didn't have to know anything to see this man speak to the wind and waves, and the wind and the waves immediately produce a great calm. You had to know nothing to be stunned by that. So the most visually stunning of Jesus' miracles is now followed up with the most spectacular exorcism of demons in all the scriptures. In fact, the most spectacular exorcism of demons in all of human history is right here before us. 
This is not the casting out of one demon. This is the casting out of so many demons. Those who can rightfully call themselves legion because they are so many and so powerful. Jesus casts them out and he does so definitively. So let's pick up from verse 14. Pick up the story here from verse 14 as we read that the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. So this is after the casting out of the demons. They go into the pigs and they throw themselves off the ravine into the water and they drown in the water. After this, we read that the herdsmen fled told this in the city and in the country. So in my mind, I picture that there's these herdsmen. They're maybe some distance away from the action that's happening. Maybe they, they're far enough away that they can't hear the interchange between Jesus and the, demon, the, the demonized man. But nonetheless, perhaps they can see it, or perhaps they are close enough that they can hear it. But in either case, they look and they see this interchange happening. They see these boats that will come up on the shore and Jesus and some of the other disciples get out of this boat and some of the other boats and they can see this demonized man. They know who he is. They've known him for years and they know what he's all about. And so he runs up to Jesus and perhaps they're expecting this big fight. They're expecting to see some Jews get beat up, jump back in their boat and get away as fast as they can. Perhaps that's what they're expecting. And whether or not they can hear the interchange, they can nonetheless see what happens. They can see that the demonized man, who Matthew tells us has a habit of beating up people that walk nearby, is instead falling before Jesus' feet. And then we see Jesus and him have this, this exchange of words. And then we see this visible change in the man this visible something that happens in the man. And then almost at the same moment, the herd of pigs that we're guarding or watching over, something happens to them. And we don't know exactly what this is, but somehow something has happened to these pigs. And then the next thing we know, they are rushing into the sea and diving into the sea and drowning into the sea. So you can imagine what their thoughts are all about as they see this happen. This is not exactly what they were expecting to happen. This is the opposite of what they were expecting to happen. And so we're, we're told that they fled. They're fearful. They, they see this thing. They're filled with fear. They fled and they told it in the city and in the country. So I picture them running back to the near city, which we said last week would have probably been the city known as Kersha in the Aramaic or Gersha in the Greek. So they probably run back to the city. It's probably a good distance away. But on the way, they're telling everybody that they see. They're, they're passing people in the fields, in the countryside, and they're telling what just happened. And they get back to the city. They go through the city gates. A crowd collects around them, and they tell the story of what happened there. People are listening intently. And then, after hearing the story, we read that people came to see what it was that had happened. So now they come back with a crowd of people from the city. They come back, and the, the sheep, the uh, pig herders, obviously they want to clear themselves of the possible guilt of losing 2,000 pigs. So they come back to verify their story. So the people came back to see what it was that had happened. Verse 15, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So there we see, as we said last week, that is a picture of a genuine conversion. That's a picture of salvation where this man that we're told three things, he's sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. So first of all, he's sitting, meaning that he's no, meaning that he's no longer wandering aimlessly. We were told earlier that he wandered aimlessly. Day and night, he wandered among the tombs, restless, without rest. Now he's sitting and resting. And he's sitting, of course, at Jesus' feet. So now he's no longer wandering. He's now resting at Jesus' feet. Secondly, he's clothed. 
Luke tells us that he had long ago stopped wearing clothes. So now he's clothed, meaning to us that he is now no longer living in shame. His shame is now covered. We said last week we could even think of this metaphorically as now he's clothed in the righteous robes of Christ. But even nonetheless, we could say that he's, his shame is now ended. Jesus has taken his shame. No longer is he wandering. He's now resting. No longer is he walking about in shame, but he's now clothed. And then thirdly, we're told that in his, he's in his right mind. In his right mind, the word that Luke or Mark uses there is a word that sometimes is trans- translated to be a sober judgment or sober mindedness. For example, Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. That means judgment that is not inebriated, judgment that is not distorted, but instead it's plain and clear judgment. Uh, elsewhere, it's often translated as self-controlled. Same word, Titus chapter 2, verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Or Peter, from 1 Peter 4, verse 7, to the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be, here's the word again, self-controlled and a different word, sober-minded. So the idea of self-controlled, we get that. That's, that's plain. That's evident for us to understand what self-controlled means. Self-controlled means to be in control of your own faculties, to be in control of your words, to be in control of your actions. This is a description of the character of the Christian. The character of the Christian is a self-controlled character. We are in control of our thoughts. We're in control of our words. We're in control of our actions. Not perfectly, but that is the character description of the Christian. So this man is described as being self-controlled, in control now of his words, in control of himself, in control of his actions now, which is the exact opposite of what he just was. He was anything but self-controlled just before this. He was controlled by others. He was controlled by the, the demonic, by the dark, by the kingdom of darkness. He was controlled completely and utterly by them. Now he is self-controlled. He's in control of himself. So the picture here is the picture of the epitome of a transformation that has taken place. This is, as we said last week, this is Scripture's premier picture of a radical transformation from lostness to conversion, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. This is Scripture's premier picture of a transformation that is radical in every uh, in every aspect of it. So they come and they see him uh, sitting, clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now we'll come back to talk about their fear a little bit later. That'll be a big part of what we talk about today. But just continuing on from verse 16, and those who had seen it, Describe to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. So those who were there when it happened, the, the tenders of the pigs, so to speak, they, uh, in my mind, I picture them, they're now telling, now, now him, that God right there, he was the one that did it. You see, you see the man that we always called Legion, you see him, and that other guy, he's the one that did it. And then the pigs, this happened to them, and the next thing I know, they were running over there, that's where they jumped off, and maybe then, then maybe they all go and they look down and they see a few more pigs sort of floating around there. Now, by the way, now's the time for all the, the jokes, Bay of Pigs, the uh, deviled ham. This is the first devil. There's, there's many jokes that we can make, but we'll pass, kind of pass over them because we've all heard them before. But maybe they look over into the water. Maybe there's still a few pigs floating around there and they're explaining to them, this is what happened. This is where this took place, etc. So those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man. So they saw what happened to him. Clearly, visibly, he's now a different person. And they describe what happened to the pigs. Verse 17, and they began to beg Jesus 
to depart from their region. So there, as we said last week, there's a, a lot of begging that takes place, not in this, only in this story, but in the larger story. All these, all four of these miracles, as we said a couple of Sundays ago, that they really follow the same patterns. They are emphasizing the same things. And one of the same things that we see recur over and over in all four of these present miracles is the earnest begging, the zealous plea. So the disciples make this earnest plea to Jesus, teacher, do you not see that we're about to die? And then, of course, in this story, there's the earnest begging on the part of the demons to Jesus. There's the earnest begging of the townsfolks that we see here. We'll see just a little bit later. Another earnest begging, same word every time. Another earnest begging on the part of the man to Jesus. Then we're going to see an unspoken begging on the part of the woman with the flow of blood. And then we're going to see a spoken begging, same word again, on the part of Jairus to Jesus that he would hurry up and get to his house. So the whole passage is a passage, like we said, a passage of desperation. Everybody in all four of these stories is desperate for, for one reason or another. So they earnestly beg, uh, they earnestly beg Jesus to depart from their region. And again, we'll come back and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat. Now notice there, there we just saw a juxtaposition that is quite stunning when you notice it. It's a juxtaposing together of two aspects of Jesus' character that are quite stunning to see right together like that. In the previous passage of the calming of the storm, we noticed one of the, the greatest juxtaposings of Scripture, which is to say, Right there together in that story was the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus, and they weren't far apart. They were right there together. And it wasn't just a little bit of each one. It was both of those in full view. Jesus is shown to be, how could you show him to be more human than being so exhausted that he falls into such a deep sleep that he sleeps through the storm? How can you be portrayed any more human than that? But then they jostle him awake. We said as, the, as they had to, uh, Mark uses the word for resurrect. They had to resurrect him. And as soon as he's awake, he speaks and the wind and the waves obey. How can you put together the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus any more closely than that? So we saw that juxtaposing. Here we see another juxtaposing of another two aspects of Jesus' character. And that is his power put right beside his meekness. Did you notice? His power right beside his meekness. He just spoke to the demon that Scripture would have us to see is the most powerful force of demons outside the prince of demons himself. Jesus just stood before this man known as Legion and Legion begged him for permission to not be cast into torment just yet. The power of Jesus we said last week, we, we drew this picture in our minds, imagining in our minds this great, vast battlefield with all these armies of thousands and thousands forming up for battle with all their weapons and everything. And then one man steps onto the field and that man is Jesus and everyone else drops their weapons and runs. That's the picture that we just saw of Jesus' power. Right beside that is the picture of extreme meekness. Notice how Mark narrates the story. They beg Jesus to leave. And then the next thing Mark says, he doesn't even narrate Jesus is deciding to leave. The next thing Jesus is getting in the boat. They beg him to read their, leave their region. And as Jesus got in the boat, did you notice that? Luke tells it the same way. They beg Jesus. They ask Jesus to leave their, their region. And he got in the boat and left. No discussion. Just the, the meekest, the meekest of characters. You want me to leave? I'm going. 
Jesus came here for one sheep. He rescued his sheep. Now they want him to go. And in his meekness, in his humbleness, he now leaves. This is probably the New Testament's greatest picture of the meekness of Jesus together with the power of Jesus. But there's one other place in the Old Testament that also shows us the same thing or a similar thing about the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 40. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. You see the power of God? Notice the next sentence. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And then the next sentence. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord or what man shows Him His counsel? Whom did He consult and who made Him understand? Who taught Him the path of justice and taught Him knowledge and showed Him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. You see the power, the sovereignty of God right beside the gentleness, the meekness of God. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. The nations are a drop in a bucket. Who gives the Lord counsel? Who gives Him wisdom? He will care for His, especially those who are with young. You see the gentleness, the meekness right beside the power. So he, Jesus gets in the boat. As he gets in the boat, verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. So we'll pause right there and just notice once again that this is just a dramatic story of genuine conversion. The man is displaying all of the necessary aspects of true and genuine conversion. But at this time, I think it would be right for us to see and to recognize that most likely some time has passed here. In my mind, I would picture it maybe being an hour, maybe two hours. The city is some, the town is some distance away. And of course, they didn't ride there. He ran there. So maybe an hour has passed. He had to get back to the city. He had to tell everybody. They had to come all the way back. And, and the crowd certainly moves back slower than he ran to them. And so some time has passed. And in that intervening time, Jesus has no doubt sat down and at least explained to him something of the fundamentals of who he is and the sinful condition that has plunged him into the pitiful state which he was and the rescue that Jesus has now rescued him from. He has necessarily explained something to him of this because the man is pictured for us in every way as a genuine convert to the faith, as a genuine convert and believer in Jesus Christ. And the Scriptures tell us that conversion does not happen outside of hearing the words of Christ and believing upon them. Look with me at Romans chapter 10. Beginning from verse 13, we're familiar with this section of Romans. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on Him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. So, Jesus didn't bypass that step when He cast the demons out. Jesus didn't make some sort of exception for this man, and He has now received life in Jesus' name without ever hearing of this life-giving gospel. So Jesus, at some point, it only makes sense to us that He's explained at least something to him. He's heard these words. He's believed upon these words. 
And He is now expressing for us what a genuine convert, a genuine regenerate person now looks like. So let's think about just the ways in which He shows us His true and, and genuine conversion. We said earlier that there's this trifold picture of Him sitting. No longer is He wandering. He's now resting at Jesus' feet. He's clothed, so His shame is now covered, but He's also in His right mind. So in His right mind tells us of how it is that Jesus brings about conversion, how it is the Holy Spirit brings conversion. The right mind of the uh, the demonized man is not speaking to us of some sort of mental condition that Jesus healed him from. The man was not insane. The man was demonized. He was possessed of demons. So when he's in his right mind, that's not saying to us that Jesus has now healed his insanity and he now thinks as a normal man. That's speaking not of the mind so much as what's between the ears. That's speaking of the heart. That's speaking of the soul. That's speaking of us to us of the conversion that Scripture describes. For example, as Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 and following, when he, when he speaks to the Ephesians, he says, you have had the eyes of your heart enlightened. You have had this enlightenment come upon the eyes of your heart so that you may now see clearly and you may see plainly and you may understand what you could never understand in your lost condition. You can understand, as Paul says, what is the hope to which he's called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us to believe? You have had your soul or your heart enlightened to the truth of God so that you may see and understand plainly. The demonized man could not understand these things prior to the action of God upon his heart, upon the eyes of his heart, but this has happened. And now we're told that he's now in his right mind. But also, notice further with me that we also see the uh, desire for the man to be with Jesus. He begs Jesus that he might be with him. And that's a literal interpretation or literal translation there. Not that he may go with him, but he begs him. He asks him earnestly and zealously that he might be with him. So he's expressing this true and genuine desire to be with his master. Jesus has freed him. Jesus is now everything to him. Jesus has now set the captive free. And he desires nothing more than to be with him. That's, by the way, the same word that Mark used to describe Jesus's action for the 12 apostles. He called the 12 apostles that they might, remember, be with him. In the same way, using the same word, the demonized man or the previously demonized man begs Jesus that he might be with him. It's his heart's desire to be with his Savior, to be with his Lord. And that is indeed a true sign of those who have received life in His name. If there is not an earnest desire in our heart to be with the Lord, not to just experience His blessings, not to just escape hell in the next existence, but to be with Jesus, that is the most fundamental, perhaps, emotion that accompanies genuine salvation. Remember Paul's words when Paul says that there is laid up a crown of righteousness for those who have loved His appearing. In other words, those who are earnestly and anxiously awaiting the day in which we might be with the Lord in every way. So His earnest desire to be with His Master. 
He uh, confesses this earnest desire, but also we notice the clear and plain obedience that he offers to Jesus. So Jesus, as we're going to see, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but Jesus refuses his request for him to be with him and instead, instead gives him these other instructions that we'll talk about in just a minute. But these other instructions, he receives these instructions and then he immediately obeys these instructions. And make note of the fact that what Jesus had him to do, and again, just sort of set that aside for now. We'll come back, we'll circle back around to that. But what Jesus had him to do was not what he desired to do. The obedience that he rendered to Jesus in the passage tells us nothing of any wavering or discussion. He didn't ask Jesus twice. According to the passage, he received the instructions and the next thing he obeyed. So this obedience that he renders to Jesus, we know that the scriptures teach us that is a mark of true conversion, that if we love him, we will keep his commandments. But we should also understand, once again, that this is not a commandment that he desired to obey. This was contrary to his desires, which is, again, teaching us something that we know to be true, which is to say that it's simply poppycock, what we often hear, that conversion... When God converts the sinner to the saint, that he also converts our desires. And so if we're in Christ, we just simply do what we want to do because God has sanctified our desires. And so now we just follow our heart and do what we want to do. That's not the teaching of the scriptures. Instead, the scriptures teach us that, yes, conversion is a necessary process of sanctifying and changing the desires But the scriptures also teach us that that's not an immediate process. That's not not an immediate occurrence. And so the scriptures teach us of an ongoing battle with the flesh, an ongoing battle with the desires that would be opposed to the will of God. And so in a real way, obedience to the commands of God is only true obedience if it obeys the desires of our master when they are contrary to our own desires. So in this way, his heart's desire, his deepest wish, as he begs earnestly, I just want to be with you. Let me be with you. Yet the command of his master is contrary to that, and he immediately obeys his master. So we see that as a stunning indication of his true conversion. 